Hello and welcome to Weird Together, the show where we celebrate the latest and greatest in independent horror films. I'm Brennan Storr, host of the Ghost Story Guys podcast. I'm Joseph Camo, host of The Cardinal Rule. We're not critics. We're not experts. We're just weird. Together. Joseph, my friend, this is ordinarily the part of the show where I ask you how you're doing, but this is a get-ahead. We are actually recording this, I think, probably about a month before it's going to come out. So I'm going to ask you, how do you think you're doing right now? Well, oh man, that's a very existential question. I just, I just spent the last hour and a half talking about movies with a, a very enlightened dishwasher. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I think I'm doing pretty good right now. <laughs> I may be the most enlightened dishwasher. No, that's not true at all. I know lots of dishwashers <laughs> who trip balls on various hallucinogens. They are very enlightened. Still angry, but enlightened. <laughs> that's fair. And I will be, I should just be coming back from England as this airs or thereabouts. So, uh, hopefully the trip has gone well, the convention appearance has gone well, but, uh, I will not speculate any further for I do not wish to anger the gods. Especially not the older gods. No, no, especially not the older gods. Throwback to the episode before last, in which we talked about David A. Roberts' Older Gods, available now on Tubi. All right, Joseph, this time around, we are here to talk about a film that's a little bit older than what we usually talk about. Usually we talk about stuff made in the same year, but this is, this is a 2021 film. We are here today to talk about Bull. As we always say on this show, you never watch a film in isolation. You always take your expectations, the day you had, all kinds of other things into a film with you. And so before we break down the film itself, we got to do that thing we always do on this show, Joseph, where we take apart the baggage. <laughs> What, if any, baggage did you have going into Bull? You know, the only baggage I had really was the knowledge that this film had a horror element to it. And if you're listening to this, we're going to have spoilers. So you don't want spoilers. Pause, go back, watch the film, then come listen. But obviously going through most of the film, that is not the genre that it feels like. But it does not really significantly hint towards it being some sort of twist, right? So knowing that it was a horror, that it had horror elements going into it, I knew there was something that had to be coming that it was not really showing through much of the film. Fair enough. I hadn't considered that actually, but that, yeah, that, that's interesting. I, I, yeah. So for me, I went into Bull almost completely clean. I first saw the film, I want to say last year. I can't exactly remember, but it was just a blind rental. The cover, something about the cover art really spoke to me. I just thought it was cool, basically. And so I rented it. I, I loved it. Loved it right away. And then because we had to prep episodes in advance for, you know, to cover for my vacation, I was kind of casting around. And as we mentioned on the episode for Older Gods, you know, I watched quite a few films to try and find something that I think is, is worth bringing up on the show. And I, I didn't have time. So I thought, let's go back in the archive. What's something I've seen that's fairly recent, but still kind of fits the rubric of what we do on the show? And Bull popped into my head. And actually, Bull popped into my head because I saw the lead, Neil Maskell, headlining that new Idris Elba Apple TV series, Hijack. Maskell plays one of the hijackers. And so I thought, ah, there we go, Bull. And that was it. So yeah, I I had no, the first time going in, I had no baggage whatsoever. I thought it was a gangster film and I do love gangster films. I guess that is some baggage, you know, especially English gangster films. 
you know, there is, as we'll talk about in the Octagon, there are elements to them, which I feel like no one else really replicates the same way. But apart from that, no, I, I went in pretty clean. Now, of course, with that out of the way, my friend, we must, as really the gangsters in the film do, we, we must gird our loins and go forward into the Octagon. Welcome to the Octagon. Two men enter, two men leave. All right, Joseph. What did you think of Bull? I really liked this film. Ah, excellent. Yes. Now, you know, listen, it had some pretty violent elements to it, and you have to be okay with that. I'm not a huge torture porn kind of person. You know, I don't like that in films. I can deal with some violence, clearly, if I like this film. And, you know, it was kind of right on that line where much more, and it would have been a bit much for me, but the film was so good that I was fine with that, right? It reminded me a little bit, almost like of a, a, a Guy Ritchie film, a little bit, you know, kind of that British gritty, you know, in the same niche with like the Tarantinos of the world, but kind of little, little more gritty and a little less tongue and cheeky, you know, in terms of uh, what you might get with, with some of Tarantino stuff. But there was something, you know, just sort of this grittiness that did remind me of those kind of late 90s, early 2000s sorts of films by by this sort these sorts of filmmakers that that I really enjoyed. So, yeah, overall, and, and we can talk about the details as we go through this. I thought it was just a really well well made film. Yeah, absolutely. I I love the film as well. Again, I've seen it a couple times now. I would happily watch it again. The thing you're talking about is one of the things I really admired about it, and that's the UK does social realism in crime films. I think better than almost anywhere. You know, that it's really on display in Bull, the films like Get Carter, the 1971, I think it's Mike Hodges film, Get Carter, starring Michael Caine as a, a really hard, really hard-bitten hitman who, or gang enforcer, basically, who goes back to his hometown in the north of England to attend his brother's funeral. And there, there's just a, a, a realistic kind of a, a grimness and, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a, like a, a lived-in quality that other gangster films don't have. Even I feel like Guy Ritchie sort of, sort of moved away from that. You know, some of his stuff, it's even his, his really sort of like Snatch and Lockstock, it's kind of glossy. You know, it's, it shows it as fun, even though maybe they don't have a ton of money. It's kind of like kitschy and cool. There's nothing kitschy or cool about Bull, about, especially about the world that the characters inhabit. It's a very grim, workaday world that, I mean, I, I have some connection. Not connection, connection is the wrong word. I have some awareness of the blue-collar criminal world just, you know, through things in my life growing up in a small town. And that's kind of how it is. You know, that's, that's the, the fact of it. I mean, the characters in this film, they're all gangsters and they all have day jobs. You know, even Norm, the boss, you know, maybe he doesn't work, but it kind of seems like he has things he does other than run his criminal empire. And it's so it's, it's this very kind of desperate, hard scrabble sort of criminality. And again, I just feel like UK films do that better than anybody. And actually, I was kind of pleasantly surprised to see that in interviews, Paul Andrew Williams, the director, he name checked Get Carter as one of the films he sort of returned to before he made this. Oh, nice. Yeah, he referenced another film called Dead Man's Shoes, uh, starring Patty Considine. That I actually I haven't seen and I wasn't able to find. It's not streaming anywhere here in Canada or even rentable anywhere in Canada. But yeah, the only American films I have felt really kind of nailed that. And of course, you know, I'm sure there's more. I just this is based on my limited experience. But films which adapt the novels of, of George V. Higgins. So uh, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, 
back in 1973. That is a brilliant example of just down on your luck, criminals cutting each other's throats and, and getting away with it. And, and just, but, but, but doing it for peanuts over nothing, which is honestly, that's the way criminality generally works. You know, we have this really inflated idea of what constitutes organized crime. And by and large, that's not the case. You know, I, I just finished reading, or not just, last month I read The Five Families by Selwyn Robb, which is this exhaustive history of the mob in New York City. And so much of that, of what they did back then, it, they're just making a wage. The bosses make lots of money, but the workers, the, the guys below them, the underbosses, a lot of those guys are not making a ton of cash. And they, you know, there's no security. They go to jail, they're broke, you know, it, it, and that's most working class criminality. It's just a cycle of flush and broke and flush and broke. And there's always the next big thing coming, but it never evolves into anything. Half these guys work as many hours as they would at a straight, at a straight job. And frankly, most of them don't make a lot more money than that. And that's something I felt that Bull reflected really, really well. That's interesting. I never thought about that, but you make a great point in terms of the difference in realism in, in kind of mob crime, sort of organized crime sorts of films. And I wonder how much of that is a product or function of just the fact that the, the gangster genre of film and, and television is so popular in America, is so romanticized, right? You know, I mean, oh, yeah. You know, I, so I, like many people, I, I watched and really enjoyed The Sopranos, right? And even that's a little more down to earth, but still romanticizes it a bit. So that's interesting. And yeah, I think that you make a good point about how the British films make it a little more realistic. You know, it's, this might seem like an odd piece of film or television to use as an example of someone that does it a little bit more realistically because it's kind of a comedy. But Barry is brings the scope down a little bit to earth, right? You know, because, you know, if you haven't seen Barry, sorry, spoilers, you know, he is a kind of a low tier hitman, right? Who's from, you know, uh, what Cleveland, right? And he's on these kind of, you know, really shitty jobs. And, and so that at least kind of brings it, brings it down to earth a little bit, but uh, still, you know, I wouldn't say it's completely realistic, but I think what you're talking about, yeah, this, these guys just kind of going around, you know, they've got their day jobs, but they're also kind of going and, you know, kind of uh, putting the vice grips on a guy who's doing a meat packing operation yeah. to, to kind of, you know, make a little extra money. But it's not as sexy as the film, the mob films, you know, make it out to be. Yeah, that's it. And I think you're right. I think because the outlaw is such an ingrained part of American culture. Yeah. You know, I mean, look at how much people like Pretty Boy Floyd and Al Capone, you know, they kind of became folk heroes in a way despite all of them being violent sociopaths, if not full on psychopaths, but they became heroes because, you know, they were fighting back against the system. And, and I, I think that has led, yeah, to, to romanticiz romanticization. I mean, I think also films like the films of Martin Scorsese, especially from Goodfellas forward, I think has informed that a lot. Cause I mean, Scorsese, if you actually watch the film, it shows a pretty shitty world, you know, I mean it, the opening, of, of the film when he's, you know, he's a big deal and he's getting tables brought out for him in the restaurant. He's getting the, the prime seats. Yeah. I mean, it looks like a good time, but one of the things Scorsese has always kind of talked about is when he was a kid, he watched gangsters and it kind of seemed like a cool life. You know, they were big deals and people liked them and they were strong. But in the end, the, your brothers will cut your throat to save their own. They'll cut your throat for a nickel. There is no real brotherhood there. There's a lot of lip service paid to it, but it's not actually there. 
But I think when people think of those films, when they think about Goodfellas, if you ask the average person, they'll be, oh, it glorifies being in the mob. When again, if you watch the whole film, which I recently have, because I, I read uh, Glenn Kenny's book about making Goodfellas. And so I was kind of curious to you know, w- watch the film after having read the book. And yeah, it, it just shows what a shitty, sh- hollow thing it is. But pe- what people remember is the good stuff. And I think that's informed a lot of other portrayals. I think you make an important point about sort of the hierarchy. Like those films follow the people closer to the pinnacle, right? Yeah. Of the, the organizations. But everyone else that you, you know, you see all the, in the background, these extras who are the straw men or who are expendable or who are just the person getting coffee or picking up dry cleaning for, or doing the dirty work. And, you know, in real reality, you know, in any organization, there are far more grunts than there are princes, right? So I would imagine the more typical, right, the median experience of someone in crime is kind of shitty, right? And it is not the 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 big roller, you know, they that's that's how it's been romanticized and you know in in film and media and music and, and art. But the typical person is not the person who's having, you know, who who's who's a big big player, you know, a high roller and having tables saved for them at the best restaurants in town. Yeah. I mean, just to sort of bolster that and we'll, then we'll go back to bold. I'm going to share a story with you. I have had occasion. I don't know this person. I, I have interacted with them. I don't know them personally. I cannot stand them. But there was a, a person long time ago who I had occasion to know who sold a certain powdery substance, which enhanced certain people's parties. And this person was a garbage person. So let's get that out of the way. There's no romanticization, romanticization here. This person was a piece of shit but they sold the, the party supplies. Now, when you watch that in films, guy who sells the party supplies, he's doing really well. You know, he's got the nice car, he's got the nice house, he's really slick. This particular party supply salesman also was a DJ in a not very nice nightclub. The, he would, you knew he was about to uh, commence retail services when the dance floor, which was empty, was suddenly filled with smoke from the smoke machine. And then a number of gentlemen would make their ways down to the dance floor into the smoke. And they would come out of there not having danced because they did not appear to be sweating. But they all made a beeline for the bathroom where I assume they were all just doing their hair. And this person would use the cover of the smoke machine to sell party supplies. And that's how sad and pathetic the life of most drug dealers are. Now, now not to shit on all drug dealers because not all drugs are the same and so on and so forth. But it's not a glamorous thing. And, and again, I thought Bull really effectively portrayed this very workaday world that, that most criminals live in, I think. So, Bren, I have not lived as street savvy of a life as you have, you know, hobnobbing with party supply salespersons. But I have one experience uh, of a person who was a coworker who was selling other substances that are now in some places legal, but at the time were, you know, much less legal. This was probably 25, 30 years ago. No, it's more like 30 years ago. Damn, I am old. But I was working at a certain pizza establishment and one of my coworkers was like a, a shift leader, assistant manager, and he would sell his substance out of the store when people would order a bag of breadsticks or people, they would pe- buy it. People who were buying from him would come in, order a bag of breadsticks and he would sell 
the, wow. he would kind of put what he was selling into the breadsticks for these people uh, and he would sell it through this chain fast food. So, you know, so your guy's running, you know, your guy was a DJ. My guy was literally like, you know, a uh, pizza chain pizza a shift leader. Right. So <laughs> it just kind of reinforces that. Yeah, it's not necessarily always as glamorous as, as the movies make it out to be. Yeah. Yeah. To say the least. In one last working class film that I wanted to mention, because I, I think, or gangster film that I wanted to mention, and because it was also part of the inspiration for this film, and they actually inserted a line to uh, in tribute to that film, and that is Steven Soderbergh's The Limey. Really great film. It's sort of a great story of a film that was apparently found in editing, but I, I won't get into that now. But it stars Terrence Stamp as a criminal who's recently gotten out of prison for a long stretch and sets about taking vengeance on the man who has killed it, is responsible for the death of his daughter. And um, it, what's really interesting about it is for the flashback scenes, they actually use footage from an old Ken Loach movie starring Terrence Stamp. So the flashback scenes are of a very young Terrence Stamp playing a criminal, but they were from a, a much older film. I think the film was called Poor Cow, but uh, very, very cool technique and just a really interesting film. And the line when Bull tells, I can't remember who he tells it to, but he says, tell him I'm, you tell them I'm coming. That was an ADR line added later in tribute to Terrence Stamp in the Limey, because that is something he screams in sort of unhinged way, tell them I'm coming. And I, I got to tell you, Joseph, I have a weakness for that trope. I think it's no matter what, I think it's cool. You know, when, when in first blood part two, Rambo tells, tells Murdoch, I'm coming to get you, you know, I'm sold. <laughs> I'm right there. Or, uh, there's a film called Valdez is coming starring, and I want to say Burt Lancaster. I might be as, as a guy named Valdez. So problematic. He gets the shit kicked out of him and then he goes on a rampage of revenge. And, and yeah, his thing is like, you tell them, you tell them Valdez is coming. And I'm, I'm again, no matter how bad anything else is, I'm like, yes, I'm here for this. <laughs> you swear vengeance and I will watch the film. So I, I, I really enjoyed that. So I want to go back to something I kind of mentioned in, in the baggage to kind of take this conversation a little bit different direction. You know, I mentioned that, you know, I was aware that there was something coming. I didn't know what exactly, you know, this was playing out like a revenge, just straight up revenge film. And it certainly was a revenge film, but with a horror element. And then there was a twist at the end, right? That, you know, and again, if, if you're, if you're upset about spoilers here, you're in the wrong <laughs> what, place. what are you even doing listening? Uh, Right, right, right. You go watch the film, then come back. But, you know, that that he is sort of returned from the dead and, you know, and, and then what they do with his eyes to kind of play that out. And, and you know, obviously he's there to kind of not only avenge himself and his son, but to kind of save his son from, you know, what he's fallen into. And one of the things I, I, I do wish, and I, I'm not, don't feel guilty about this, you, you know, but because we, I knew this was a horror film because this is what this podcast is about. But I do wish that I had the opportunity you had to watch it clean because I don't know how I would have felt about that twist if I didn't know something was coming. Ah, right? uh, that's fair. That's fair. Right. Because, you know, what, I could see it going a couple of different ways. I could see myself of founding it odd and off putting like like like, man, this is such a great revenge film. Why did they need to do that? Right. Did you get to experience the sixth sense in the film in, 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 in theaters. I did. Yeah. Okay. I got to experience that. I saw it when it was, you know, new in the theaters. I didn't know what the twist was. No one had spoiled it for me. 
And this, you know, this was M. Night Shyamalan's kind of first major film that got him on, you know, on kind of everyone's kind of, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, but public awareness of him. Right. And, you know, certainly M. Night Shyamalan has almost been kind of become a caricature of himself in terms of, oh, you expect a twist now. Sure, yeah. But this was before there had been so many of those twists and so many of those films. This is when it was fresh and new and novel. And I got to experience that and have that. Oh my God, the Holy shit moment. We're like, Bruce Willis has been dead the whole time. And then, you know, if you've watched this, you, you know, you go back and you see it all makes sense that, Oh, there are points where you think he's having a conversation with someone. Really? He's not. And it makes sense. And for me, whatever you might think of M. Night Shyamalan, and I like some of his movies more than others, that for me was probably one of the best film-going experiences of my life. Maybe it's the age I was. Maybe it's that it was new. Maybe it's that I got to see that, you know, before the M. Night Shyamalan twist became a thing in the public consciousness, right? But certainly this twist was a little bit in that vein, right? So... You know, I wondered would I have enjoyed would I have enjoyed it that twist in a different way if I didn't know something was coming. And I do obviously I don't know some and maybe what I guess what this whole monologue of mine is is I'd be curious how you experienced that twist because you did get to see it, you know, kind of clean. So there's kind of two ways I can illustrate that. I mean, one was my experience, which was yeah, I'm just watching a British gangster film. It's very cool, and I was very curious. You know, I thought. Is it going to go the High Plains Drifter route where it seems like the person who has returned is in fact the wronged party that the town killed, that these people killed, and they're returning as a revenant? Or is it someone else? We don't 100% know. I mean, you pretty much know, but you don't totally know. So I wasn't sure if it was going to be that kind of thing, you know? And, and apparently that was a film that, again, they used as a reference, High Plains Drifter. But I, yeah, I didn't expect necessarily such an explicit reveal because I was kind of doing that thing. And the other way I can explain it is, is watching with Nikki, my wife who, who watched it with me when I watched it this, this time. And she was doing that. She was kind of enjoying it, but also trying to figure out, okay, so how are they going to, how are they going to explain this? How are they going to, you know, how are they going to make this work? And she, again, it, it, she really enjoyed it, but it kind of came out of nowhere. And for me, I, when it hit, I, I kind of went like, oh man, cause I love a good twist. I like to, I like to kind of, when someone's just he hits you with something out of left field and there are bad twists there are lazy twists there are twists that invalidate the entire experience i know roger ebert famously hated the the usual suspects for its twist ending because it essentially invalidated everything that came before it whereas i kind of like that i haven't seen it in a long time but at the time i loved it because i just thought oh i didn't see that coming so for me it i didn't have that problem but it did remind me of christopher nolan's the prestige with hugh jackman and christian bale and of course that film builds to not a horror finale, but a science fiction finale. And its reveal is is pretty messed up and completely out of tone with the rest of the film. The rest of the film is this sort of duel between two illusionists. And then you find out that the other illusionist ha- has been using this sort of arcane technology to accomplish these things. And I, I liked that too. But again, that was heavily criticized at the time for being sort of not in keeping with the tone of the story. So for me, it, it knocked me off my feet and I just, I loved it. I thought it was very cool. Cause again, I also like Revenant movies. I like like Avenger movies, Patrick Lussier's Drive Angry. You know, we talked about his last film, Play Dead on a recent show. Drive Angry was about Christopher, or sorry, Nicolas Cage escaping hell to take revenge on the people 
who wronged his daughter and to save his grandchild. And I'm always a sucker for, for that kind of plot, you know, except one, I think it, it allows for us a kind of redemption and it also allows for a really a bad person because they're in hell to use their particular variety of evil on people who deserve it. Because we see, we see Bull in this film do things in the past, which are, are done to people who do not deserve it. You know, we see him cut off a man's fingers to force him to sign a contract for Norm. And obviously that man, yeah, he didn't have that coming. Bull just did it because that's what he does. You know, he was a very bad person. We sort of get that impression. Like he loved his son, but he did cruel things in, you know, in Norm's name or, or for Norm. So it, it kind of lets you root for the bad guy because they're, they're, again, they're, they're enacting their evil on other bad people. There is a part of me that leans towards it was such a good revenge film that it didn't need that. But you're right. How do they resolve? I mean, and you know, they, they, I think they hint towards his death throughout the film. It's not t- until the very end that they really make it clear. But, but you hear like, you know, Norm, I think you said his name was, is like not willing to entertain the idea that it's Bull that's doing this, right? It's got to be someone associated with Bull. Well, that, okay, that's kind of a pretty big kind of giveaway that, okay, uh, he doesn't think it could be Bull, so maybe Bull's, okay, supposed to be dead. Uh, you know, but then you wonder, well, is he supposed to be dead, but he escaped? Well, then when they show the scene of how it happened, like, no, no, yeah. unless he is Michael Myers, right, you know, who gets up from a, an obscene number of bullet wounds, this dude was dead, right? Yeah, yeah, and, um, and Nick was doing that. She was kind of trying to game it out in her head, even by the point, of course, Bull is trapped in a burning caravan, and he burns alive, uh, and t- well, he burns alive until he is shot, when he, cause he escapes the caravan and even then Nick was trying to figure game it out. Okay. Maybe that's not actually bull. Maybe that's someone else. And he got out the back, you know, and I mean, you could argue that if the film had managed to figure a way to do that, it would have been, you know, even cooler. But I think, I think it works thematically because bull is such a damned character. You know, he, 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 his whole life was the people he threw his, his lot in with, and they all turned out to a man to be scumbags. And so kind of like how, you know, we, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the film Older Gods and how it was a little bit discordant that the character managed to blow up his life and then return to it. And it just, it didn't really seem to, that part didn't work, you know, cause they wanted to, they gave it that happy ending or happy-ish ending. And I feel like that would have been true of Bull. If he'd actually still been alive, one, you have to account for a 10 year absence. And two, where does he go from here? What's, what's his arc? You know, like he it's hard just to let someone enact that level of violence and then kind of just go, and now I'm out into the world. I mean, I, I don't think it's a better world with bull in it. That's a good point. Yeah. You know, one of the other things that I think that helped resolve to that at the moment, it didn't make it early in the film. What didn't make sense to me is when the, the crew is visiting bull's mother and they're, you know, they're, they're essentially torturing her to try to get the information. Right. And, and then they're leaving. You see Bull standing there, and and that's like uh, you know my thought was like, wait, why is he not stopping this? This is his mother. And then he goes in there, and he actually he talks to her, and then he puts her out of her misery, for lack of a better term, you know. And that all felt weird. Like, what? Wait, what is he? Why is he angry with? But it makes more sense with him as in 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 the the form that we find out he actually is in, right? In that he's come back, and that. For whatever reason, 
you know, he he does that to her, but it makes more sense if if that makes sense at all for him to do that and to not intervene as someone who's returned from the dead. Yeah, I, I think it also helps because we don't necessarily get a full reading on what Bull is capable of, you know, in this form. Is he vulnerable to attack? You know, and I think I think one of the things you need to be cautious about when you're doing a film like this is you need to have, a, at least internally, a pretty solid sense of what your character can or cannot do. Uh, because if there is internal inconsistency, that happens, you know, or that gets noticed. You know, I remember the horror film Mirrors with Kiefer Sutherland. It's based on a, I think it's a remake of a Japanese film. I've never seen the original and I've only seen about uh, maybe 20 minutes of Mirrors because it seemed very apparent early on that there was no, that there was going to be no consistency as to the capabilities of the the demons in the film. You know, quite often people are just like, it's evil, it can do whatever I need it to do in the script. And so I think, yeah, if, if we'd had Bull turn up, I mean, he was going to have to then, one, it, it stops the film early, or two, you know, they, they have to wound him somehow. And then we, again, we have to figure out, okay, can he be wounded? Can he be, and this way we don't, we don't have to think about any of that. And, and also I think too, it, it shows us that his time in hell has given him some perspective because he sort of says to his mom, maybe if you were a better mom, I wouldn't have been this person, you know, and, and he kind of has, has that thought. And I, I can't imagine that's a thought Bull would have had in life just based on what we see of him. And I, I do want to say Neil Maskell's performance as Bull is really great. Yeah. Outstanding. And I mean, the, the, the acting throughout the film was just fantastic. And, you know, and I, I, I'd like to use that maybe as a, an opportunity to kind of pivot to talking about some of the things about the film craft of this. It was, this was a really well-made film. Yeah. The dialogue was great. You know, we, we just recorded before this talking about a film that I described as being having too much, you know, narrative and leaning way too heavily on it. And man, this, this film did a great job of showing, you know, instead of telling and it told when it needed to, but, and it did some things through flashbacks, but they didn't unpack the whole story for you. You kind of start getting bits and pieces of it unfolding for you through, you know, and, you know, and certainly the timeline, they play with the timeline a lot, which, which is, you know, a really nice element. I think they do that. Well, the opening shot of the, the, was the two or three guys like with burying apparently bowl and just walking over the horizon or over the hill. And it's just this long steady shot, right. With the opening credits and it, it lasts a while, yeah, but it's so well done and it just really sets the tone. Like from the, that first opening credits, I knew this was going to be a really good film. It, it, it's just something about, okay, whoever put this film together has an eye and a sensibility and an understanding to, to open with this shot that is very simple, but so effective, not overdone, not underdone, not moving the camera around. They, they have a clear artistic vision. They know what the shot needs to look like. They have conviction and they execute it. And maybe I'm overanalyzing an opening shot, but like it showed me the kind of artistry that this filmmaker had and, and the rest of the film, you know, certainly uh, lived up to that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It's the only film I've seen from Paul Williams, although he directed some episodes of Broadchurch, five episodes of Broadchurch, which if you haven't seen it is a really great British crime series. 
it's on my list of things to watch. Yeah, <laughs> I love David Tennant, but yeah. It's very, very good. If you And if you want to contrast that, they remade it here in America as Grace Point, shot here in Victoria, uh, as a matter of fact. And it is, it's not terrible, but it's it's nowhere near the level of, of Broadchurch. So yeah, I, I think this is just, we're looking at, we're dealing with, as with Ennis Main, we're dealing with someone who's just that much of an artist, who's, whose capabilities are are just that much more. And, and what was really interesting is listening to interviews with Williams and also uh, him and Maskell do an episode of the, I want to say Rogue Commentary podcast, where they do an entire feature length commentary on Bull. So you can watch it in, in tandem with the film, which if I'm not mistaken, Joseph, it's on Tubi in the US? I think this one I had to rent. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. I rented here too. For some reason I had it in my head, it was on Tubi in the US. It, yeah. So in listening to some interviews with Williams, it was sort of interesting to hear him talk about his process for writing the film, which is he really made an intentional choice to try and keep the dialogue simple. He didn't want anyone giving speeches. He didn't want anyone using flowery language. He wanted to try and emulate the way people in these positions would talk, you know, simplistic language, simplistic sentiments, and not stupid, just, you know, they're not, they're not stupid people. They're just limited in their expression. And I thought, again, I thought that was really effective. Yeah, let me let me kind of maybe reframe that that the, that form of communication. Limit is, I would say, efficient, right? Because rather, you know, it's it it's parsimonious, if you will, right? You know oh. that we are engaged in a podcast where being verbose and using extra descriptive language is is kind of the mo here. But a person who is a doer. <laughs> in in you know blue collar work or crime or whatever doesn't have a isn't worried about tons of exposition they're like what's the most efficient and concise way to communicate the thing i need to communicate whether and sometimes it's in slang sometimes it isn't but it is often without as long of sentences as we uh you know, long-winded folks here in podcast land like to use, right? Or in in terms of, you know, filmmakers who might be a little too ambitious, right? And don't understand the whole, or maybe aren't at least in that moment, exercising the less is more sort of a thing. And, and that, but really that is a sign of someone who knows how to write not good dialogue, but great dialogue, right? Good dialogue is really more like poetry or 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 really kind of verbose writing and great dialogue makes you think it's a real conversation. Yeah, and and this did feel like like real conversation. And and I have to say less is more sort of applies to the entire production because again this was shot during COVID. It was so low budget that they used the actor's own vehicles in at least on at least one occasion. It was shot for well under a million dollars according to Williams over the course of, I want to say 18 days. So that's, you know, it's, it's a lot of movie for a not very large amount of time. You know, we, we talked uh, on the last episode and on this one, we've, we've mentioned Ennis Main and Ennis Main was shot on a relatively sh- low budget, very low budget over a relatively short period. But the director, Mark Jenkin also had the ability to go get pickup shots later whenever he needed them. You know, it was kind of a on your own timetable sort of thing. Whereas that was not the case with this, you know, you're dealing with a large, you know, a sizable cast considering the the scope of it. And, you know, you, you don't have those options. And from what I understand, a, a number of the actors, they kind of did, which is a very difficult thing to do, which is either a phone acting where, you know, you're hearing people 
you know, on the phone having conversations, you know, you're trying to emote using only your voice or they would just turn up on set and they would have to then give the performance like they had been there the whole time. You know, some of these actors are only there for a couple days of an 18 day shoot, but you have to sort of give the feeling like you've been friends with all these people for your whole life. And I, I felt again, they pulled all that off very, very well. And yeah, again, absolutely. And again, given the limitations of COVID, man, I mean, listening to that commentary with Williams and, and Maskell, there, there was some stuff they did that was really impressive. Like the, the fair where you see where Bull has his, his last night with his son, that was shot at the, the, I don't know, the Berry Island fair. They had 10 extras over two days and they just kept dressing them up in different clothes to make it seem like there were more people at this fair. Interesting. Which I, I think is, is very, very cool. And, and again, that's, that's the ingenuity of low budget films. Like that's one of the reasons we do this show is to just kind of salute stuff like that, that, that kind of out of the box, you know, would just make do with what you have thinking. Uh, like another great example, um, not this film, but similar lines is Adam Green's hatchet Two, where there's a lineup of characters marching through the swamp with their guns. And as I recall hearing in a commentary, they didn't have enough guns for everyone to be in the same shot. So as people marched past the camera, they would hand off the gun to a PA who would run it to the back of the line and hand it to the next person. And it, it, it's all seamless. If you didn't know what was happening, you wouldn't know. And again, I, I love stuff like that. I love that kind of ingenuity. Yeah, no, the, the, I think that's one of those things that you just really respect when, when someone finds creative ways to, to accomplish that and, and create something that just seems bigger or better that, that you don't, you know, you don't realize limitations because of how inventive they've been. And, you know, um, you know, when you tell me how, how few days this film was shot in, I'm, I'm, I'm really impressed. I mean, it's not that it's got a ton of big set pieces, it, you know, it's shot on locations, but just with the, the, the way the shots are set up and the cinematography and everything feels so intentional and well, you know, the angles and well, you know, lit appropriately and to pull that off in such a short period of time is really impressive. I mean, I, I just, I just think it, it feels like it's, it's a, a higher budget film than it is. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I know because usually you can, uh, no, you can't tell that's not true. I think most people who watch movies don't give a shit about how many days they were shot in, if, you're, if I'm honest. But you can usually tell, like if, if someone doesn't have a ton of time, that can kind of come across, like unless you're someone who can really pull it off. I mean, Josh Lobo shot, uh, I saw the devil in nine days or I trapped the devil in nine days. And I think was it we did, when we did bury the bride, spider one shot that in what, six or something? Something like that. It was really, really short filming schedule. But as much as I liked both of those films, uh, neither of them were as good as Bull. Mm -hmm. And and you get the impression that, you know, even if they'd had even less time, that, okay, the film would have suffered for it, but what they put produced would still have been, you know, would still have been uh, pretty great. Yeah. Yep. No, I, I, I absolutely agree. So, yeah, I mean, all together, just everything about this film, it was really, really solid. I'm kind of disappointed to hear it hasn't got more attention. I, I think it's got some, but it just, it, it's so well done that it, it feels like one of those films that should kind of get, you know, kind of get beyond sort of the film festival sort of circuit. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the, one of the reasons we do this show, even though we don't have a massive listenership at the moment, you know, of course we're always hoping to build towards that, but is just to try and, and highlight some films that you might not see otherwise, because 
you know, it used to be you'd wander a video store and, and maybe you'd rent something like Bull because the cover art would catch your eye and you'd look at the back and you'd think, oh, maybe that sounds kind of interesting. But it's so different cruising streaming services. There's so much, one, there's so much more content now. There's so much more, I don't even like saying the word content, but there's so many more movies now. And a lot of them are shit, which makes it then hard to divine even further. Okay, well, God, I'm looking at all these fucking movies. I've never heard of, of 90% of these, 90% of these movies. I'm just going to watch fast, whatever again, you know, and, and Hey, I like fast and furious as much as the next guy, but eh, I'd rather you spend your money on something worthwhile, but it's hard to know what's worthwhile. And so hopefully, you know, a few more people will be turned on to bull from this. Like, I, I think they did okay based on what I've heard, but I have to imagine a lot of that's in the UK and it's still kind of plugged into that, that film community. So again, yeah, I agree. I, uh, hopefully more people will find it. It, it to be honest. It's a film I would have loved to have seen on a big screen. So Joseph, any final thoughts on bull? You know, just that in general, this is probably one of the two or three best films. I feel like we've discussed thus far. It's on a short list for me uh, of the films that I've enjoyed the most in the time we've been doing this podcast. I got to tell you, man, that makes me so happy because I, I really liked this one. And again, one of the reasons I thought we should do it because it is kind of outside our, you know, the, like the latest in independent horror. Is just because, you know, again, I think it's a brilliant film that deserves attention. And so when I bring something that you also enjoy, I'm, all, I'm always very happy about that. Because you never know when you're going to get a, a demonic, a demonic? Or, or an older gods. <laughs> yeah. Or a play dead. Yeah. <laughs> but those are fun to talk about too, so. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But when you can give someone a piece of art that they also enjoy, that's a special feeling. All right. So I just want to recommend again, if anyone is looking for films along this, along these lines, it's not going to be a horror film, you know, but if you want more of that working class crime vibe, we mentioned Get Carter, the original, not the Sylvester Stallone remake. I recommend uh, Dead Man's Shoes, which again, I have not seen, but both Paul Andrew Williams and Neil Maskell have uh, sort of name checked. I recommend The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Uh, I recommend Killing Them Softly which is another adaptation of a George V. Higgins novel. It was an adaptation of Kogan's Trade, starring Brad Pitt and James Gandolfini. It's a very off-putting film for some people. It's very unusual, but it, it really, I, I love it. I own a copy. Just, I think it brilliantly depicts that again, that kind of working class crime vibe, although that does it on a more allegorical level. Still worth watching. I also recommend the film Small Town Crime. And it's, it's, I would say maybe not as effective as these, but I think it, it's worth, I, I loved it. I just don't know if it's as close to the bone as the other films I'm, I was talking about. One last one, uh, I was kind of mixed on it, but some people really loved it. I do think it's a pretty effective depiction of blue collar crime is the film Blood on Her Name. It's an indie film from a couple of years ago. Again, I didn't love it, but there are some people who did. And so maybe you'll be one of those. So if you want to keep that working class criminal train going, there are some places to start. Hey, I want to throw something out there that is completely a, a different genre. I want to boost something. And Hell this yeah. is a first for We're Together and probably a last, a rom-com. Okay. But this is, so this is available on Tubi. It is a film called Back Focus. And there's a reason I'm putting this out there because it is actually made by a filmmaker in the community I live in. Oh. I've met him. And all the actors are people from the community here. I know most of the people in the film. It's, oh, cool. it's, it's, it's fun. It's, it's a nice little film uh, for, for something that was shot for like almost no budget. 
like one of my colleagues is actually a key character in here. So, oh, cool. Uh, yeah. So if you want something a little fun, Bren, to, to see where I live and what it looks like here and maybe see some people that you won't know, but that I know uh, in, a, in a fun little uh, rom-com, uh, check out Back Focus on Tubi. Brilliant. All right. Back Focus it is. Check it and out, folks. I, this filmmaker I, I, I've heard is working on a, a, a horror film. So maybe when they finish that, we might be able to do that on here. All right, my friend, where can everyone find you online? Well, you can find me on Twitter at J-O-K-O-M-O-1-3, Jokomo13. And you can also find me on YouTube at The Cardinal Rule, where I do some NFL, Arizona Cardinal stuff, uh, my kind of other passion. And you'll find both those things linked in the show notes. I'm Largely the Truth on Instagram, Blue Sky, and Threads. I'm still on Twitter, technically. My account is there. I'm not active there. But... Again, you can follow me there if you like. You can also find my personal website at largelythetruth.com. And please do give us a follow on YouTube. You'll find a link to that in the show notes as well. We have a monthly live stream, which is always a lot of fun. Those episodes are always released in audio format as well, but it's fun to have you folks there and chat and talk about the movie in person. Again, that's every month on the Weird Together YouTube channel. And you can find me over at The Ghost Story Guys, everywhere fine podcasts live or also on YouTube. All music on this show is composed and performed by The Revenants. The Revenants are a project of Boston-based musician Elliot Wilder. Our theme song is Rest in Peace from the album Music from Big Beige. That is also by The Revenants. And you can find all of that on streaming platforms everywhere by searching for The Revenants or at therevenants1.bandcamp.com. Thank you so much for joining us, folks. We cannot tell you how much we appreciate it. And until next time, remember, we're weird. And you're weird, so why not be weird together? <laughs>